Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you here. So we are continuing in our Hot Buttons series. But you knew that. There's a good turnout today, so you're obviously excited about today's topic. I'm trying to get it up here. Well, there's point 12. Hmm. There we go. Okay, today we talk about sexuality, 12 truths about sex. So normally I like to take a passage of scripture and preach that expositionally. And today's going to be different. Um, This is going to be more of an overview of what the Bible says about this area of sex. So I hope that you will bear with me. Uh, It's actually such a huge topic. I didn't know any other way to cover it in in one week. So uh, this is what we're going to do today. So 12 truths, 12 biblical truths about sex. I know this is going to be a tough topic for many of us here today for a number of reasons. Uh, Some of us, many of us here, I'm sure, have been struggling, have struggled in the past with sexual sin. And there's such good news, obviously, in the gospel that regardless of what we've done in the past or where we we even find ourselves today, that we can run to Jesus for uh, forgiveness and for transformation. Maybe some here have experienced sexual abuse. I know that's very real in our culture, unfortunately, and it's such a a horrendous experience, so perhaps this topic will be hard for you for that reason. Or maybe you're in a marriage right now uh, that is not a happy marriage, not, uh, not, a, not the marriage that you had hoped you were signing up for. Uh, so there's a number of reasons, or, or maybe, maybe you're here today and you've been abandoned by a spouse. So I know this is not an easy topic, but it's such an important one, and I hope that we can find hope in this topic as well. Just a reminder that there are resources available, so if you click on that red button on the church website, you will find resources uh, on this area of sexuality, and of course there's so many topics within this one, um, but please uh, take advantage of that. Twelve truths about sexuality. Here's the first one, Uh, perhaps the most obvious. Sex was created by God. So we go back again to Matthew chapter 19, where we've been already twice in our series on hot buttons, and we hear Jesus referring back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and saying, at the beginning, the creator made them, male and female, and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. One flesh, as we'll see here, a reference to uh, the, the physical, sexual union that is true for those who uh, are married, the husband and the wife. Notice the clarity here that there is a creator who made this, made male and female, made marriage, made sexuality. This was created by God. We remember what it says uh, in Genesis 1 and 2 that God's creation was very good. So we never have to think of sexuality as something that's inherently dirty or sinful. It's not. It is a good creation of God. And anyone who's experienced the bliss of uh, marital sexual union surely has cried out at least once, there surely is a God. Sex, yeah, I know, it's funny. It's funny. 
We actually have to, you know, help me out here a little bit. This is not an easy topic. Can you at least laugh once in a while when I say something that's supposed to be funny? Sex has a heterosexual design. So we see this in Matthew 19 as well. Jesus so clearly reminding us of God's creation of male and female, which leads directly into marriage, which leads directly into this one flesh union. So sex has a heterosexual design. We believe that. We believe that's God's intention. So, of course, our world doesn't believe that today, and in fact would uh, perhaps call me bigoted to, to say something like this, but this is God's word. We believe this is God's Design Obviously, in our culture, uh, many freedoms have been granted to ex- for people to express their sexuality in ways that they so choose, ways that are legal in our country. Uh, but as followers of Jesus, we understand this. And anyone who says, I want to follow Jesus, anyone who comes through the doors of this church and say, I want to be part of this church and I want to follow Jesus, we are going to hold people to this, that this is God's design for sexuality. It is meant for male and female. And then we see that it's meant to be monogamous in these same words of Jesus. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Not wives, but wife. It is meant to be one marriage relationship, one sexual relationship for wife, the only for life and wife. The exception being, of course, if a spouse dies, that a person is free to remarry. But God's intent here is that marriage would be, sex would be monogamous and for life. And then we see here clearly that this is something that God made for the marriage relationship. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his, not his girlfriend, not his mistress, but to his wife. It is the marriage relationship that God has designed sex for. That is his intent. That is where it is safe and good and pure. And so we see uh, throughout Scripture, this is God's intent for sex. It's for marriage. Proverbs 5 is a passage where the, uh, the Solomon is, is speaking to his son and warning his son about promiscuity and about, uh, about the woman who's trying to lure him um, into uh, an immoral sexual relationship. And so he compares that promiscuity to the one who is married. And he uses this metaphorical language, yes, but he's speaking about uh, sex in marriage. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public places. And so this is the consistent teaching of the Bible that sex is meant for marriage. And it's one of the reasons we wanted to do this series and give this talk is just to be, just for a reminder for all of us, for our young and old, that if you're not married, God does not intend for you to be participating in sex. It is a covenant celebration, as we'll see in a few moments. Sex is meant to be experienced and enjoyed within the safety of a relationship of covenant where a husband and a wife have committed themselves to each other. I mean, sex is something that is so intimate. It's the giving away of ourselves. It's the joining of ourselves in, in, in our full nakedness with another human being. And it's the covenant relationship that makes that appropriate and safe. And don't, don't hear me and think, oh, this, here's another 
Here's another legalistic sermon and do's and don'ts and God says I can't do this and I can't do that. And what you need to hear in God's word is God saying don't hurt yourself because that's one of the things that happens when we do exactly what Proverbs describes here when when we uh, dabble in sexuality outside of that covenant relationship. There's something that's spilling out of us. There's a loss that's taking place. So God is saying "Don't, don't do that. So we just want to remind everyone here, young people, sex is created for marriage. You say, oh yeah, but there's other things we can do that aren't sex. Like we don't have to have intercourse, but we can do other things. And I've had conversations with people who believe that anything is appropriate other than intercourse in pre-marriage relationship. And of course, we would argue no. When the Bible describes the sexual relationship, for example, in the Song of Solomon, which we're gonna look at in a moment, it's describing all of the joys and all of the pleasures of physical intimacy. Um, if you find yourself getting sexually aroused with your boyfriend, girlfriend, you are going down a, a path that is inappropriate for you, that God would have you uh, save for the marriage relationship. Now, no doubt in this room, there are people who have violated God's plan And of course, we just rejoice in God's good news that there is forgiveness and redemption no matter what we've done in the past. But this is God's call to us in terms of following Jesus and being faithful to his sexual ethic. This is what it is. Marriage is where sex is appropriate and marriage alone. And then we find that sex is for more than reproduction. Uh, Many people through history, especially religious people and some religions and and some Christian denominations have emphasized that sex is only for reproduction. It's only for having children. But we find that that's just not true through scripture and even this expression that we've already seen, Jesus says the two will become one flesh. That is an expression of the sexual union. Uh, We know in Genesis that God said, be fruitful and multiply. So that was part of God's expectation that that we would produce children through sexual relationships. But there's also this reality that in marriage, the two become one. And if that's not enough, then we can turn to the Song of Solomon. Uh, How many have been reading the Song of Solomon this week in preparation? I'm sure someone, nobody. When's the last time you read the Song of Solomon? Uh, I look back uh, with... uh, humor uh, in my early days of just my teenage years and going to Bible camp and going to Bible school and, you know, having occasional discussions about the Song of Solomon and, and what is that? I think, was that supposed to be in the Bible? And then, of course, these uh, serious theologians who say, oh, yes, yes, but it's not really about what you think it's about. It's actually about Christ and the church. Just a metaphor. Don't let your mind go crazy. And I came to realize, that's a load of baloney. The Bible has a book, it's called the Song of Solomon, that is essentially a sex manual for married people. That is what it is. And now I know, many of you are gonna go home and read it this afternoon, you're more than welcome to. It is the Holy Scriptures. But here's one of the beauties that we find in this book of Song of Solomon. It's almost like God anticipated that human beings Um, especially once sin afflicted us, uh, human beings would would bend toward this idea that sex is sinful. So he put right into his holy scriptures, he put this book that says this in chapter five, verse two. It's It's like the scriptural 
a confirmation about sexual intimacy and it says eat friends and drink drink your fill of love and of course the metaphors that are used are uh, of, of spices and fruit and wine and, and that's why this terminology is being used it's God saying to us in the confines of that covenant marriage God is saying yes enjoy this is a gift to you this is what it means to be one flesh so drink your fill of love not good news Sex is more than reproduction. Number six, sex is not mandatory. Now this is different than what we're hearing in our world. Our culture is so sexualized. Everything is about sex and every advertisement is, is about sex and, and there's movies about this and, and mocking the idea of someone being a virgin. And the world says, well, you're not really human if you're not participating in sex. Like, what, what's wrong with you? But of course, Scripture says something very different. Before uh, Adam and Eve came together in the marriage union, they were already fully human. They were already made in God's image. And then, of course, we think of Jesus, who would I, I would argue is the prototypical human. He expresses to us exactly what a human being should be in all its fullness. And Jesus, of course, died unmarried uh, as a virgin. And so he teaches us through that, that you don't have to have sex, you don't have to experience sexuality to be fully human and to be fulfilled as a human being. The world says your identity is wrapped around your sexuality or your sexual prowess or how, uh, you know, how, how many relationships perhaps that you've had. But of course the Bible says that our relationship is found in God. God calls us to know Jesus and to be united to Christ and to be in Christ. That is our identity as followers of Jesus. So I just want to make this clear that sex is not mandatory. If you're an unmarried person, um, if, if you're a person who's never experienced, never had sex, that does not make you any less. And you can be absolutely fulfilled in Christ. Of course, Paul was unmarried and in 1 Corinthians 7 taught the value, and I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but, but there is value in those who are unmarried, staying unmarried, and devoting themselves to uh, the kingdom of God and to the service of God in Christ. So Paul could say to the unmarried and the widows, I say it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. So let's be clear on that point, that sex is not mandatory. Number seven, sin afflicts our sexuality, all of us. All of us there can mean understood in two ways all of us you me all of us but also all of us as individuals sin afflicts us because we are made sexual beings we're male female we have sexual organs we are capable of experiencing sexuality sin afflicts every part of us and it's amazing how sin tends to in so many of our lives gravitate towards sexuality when we think about the way that the world promotes sin and experiences, participates in sin, how often it gravitates towards sexuality. And when we think about the way that the devil tries to tempt us and tries to get us off course in our Christian life, it is amazing so how often he, he gravitates and pulls us towards sexual sin. It is a huge problem for all of us. 
Notice what I, uh, is written in Isaiah chapter 1. God describing his people of Israel and their rebellion against him. He says, why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart afflicted from the sole of your foot to the top of your head. There is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. And that's a description of what all of us look like in our sinful rebellion against God. And so sin afflicts us in our sexuality. It's really important for us to get this right because we have a tendency as conservative Christians um, to, to judge the broken sexuality of others. My son uh, told us when he was in high school that whenever it came up that his dad was a pastor, that the immediate and automatic response was, oh, so you hate gays. And that is the reputation that we have created for ourselves as evangelical Christians. And what we've failed to do, I think in in an attempt to uphold what we've talked about already today, God's design for sexuality, we have turned that into a hatefulness and a judgmentalism that does not communicate the compassion of Christ, which, by the way, all of us are desperate for. And imagine how in these last 20 years when this issue has become such a big issue and, and our reputation has taken a huge hit, all the while we are being judgmental to those with broken sexualness, sexuality, our churches are full of people like us struggling with pornography. And somehow our heterosexual lust is a notch above other forms of sexual sin. And that is so wrong. The best way for us to minister to people with sexual brokenness is to admit that we're one of them. And so what are the ways that sin afflicts every one of us? Curiosity. It's amazing how sexuality is such a powerful part of us that even as a child we have curiosity or maybe we see something we shouldn't see or we're experiencing something we shouldn't experience and and our curiosity drives us towards sin. Or maybe we get caught up in lust and fantasy and we allow our mind to to go rampant and of course we can do that when no one's around and no one knows what I think about when I lie in bed and, and I can lust and fantasize and it's secret but it's actually sin against God's design. And of course pornography has become rampant not just among men, but among women too, and in the church. Media and movies, social media. But people tell me that one of their biggest problems with lust is Instagram. And hopefully we're recognizing in terms of social media and YouTube and all of these things, the way that sex is used as clickbait. Here, watch my video. I'll put a scantily dressed woman on it that I'm hoping you'll click on and generally the ones that have a scantily dressed woman have millions of hits it's just automatic movies that almost always have to have a sex scene and and so part of our problem ladies and gentlemen is that we avail ourselves of these things and we don't even necessarily think of them as wrong we just watch movies popular movies the world's movies and they have sex scenes and they have nudity and that's just normal And then we wonder why we're caught in this lust, this desire for more, and we feel a a desire to go back and to see more and more. Sin afflicts every one of us. Masturbation, the desire to uh, provide myself with sexual self-gratification almost always, always comes with lust and fantasy. 
sexual abuse, shocking and horrifying how often this is happening in our society. How many of us, how many of you have experienced this? And then we have same-sex attraction. Notice I've put this in a list of sexual sins. And we've tended to judge and even be hateful towards homosexuality. I said a couple of weeks ago, we shouldn't be surprised by something like gender dysphoria. We shouldn't be surprised that because of the brokenness of sin that we have people who are born as boys who feel like they should be a girl or vice versa. And we shouldn't be surprised that we have people who naturally feel that they're attracted to the same sex. And by the way, that's, that's not necessarily a sin. Just as for me to experience strong heterosexual desire for a woman who's not my wife may not necessarily be a sin. It's what am I going to do with that lust and that desire? There are many people, not, many, not a huge portion of the population, but there's a number of people in, in the population within the culture who experience same-sex attraction, and more so because of how prevalent this is in discussion and in media. We need to be able to be compassionate, even as we call people, uh, especially those who say they're following Jesus. We call people to follow the ethic of Jesus. And if that means I never marry, I, I choose a celibate life, so be it. But sin affects all of us. Then there's sexual dysfunction, even for those of us who are married, a loss of desire for sex or uh, an, an inability to experience sexuality. These are all forms of sexual brokenness and all of these affect all of us. We need to see, number eight, that this sexual immorality is very serious. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, whoever sins sexually sins against their... It's one of the few places where Paul sets a kind of sin, sexual sin, apart, in a sense, from other sins. He says, to sin sexually is to sin against your own body. Do you not know, speaking to believers, that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And we see in Hebrews chapter 13, and this is an expression that's used throughout even the New Testament, that God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. In fact, what he's saying here is that uh, to live a sexually immoral life is characteristic of a person who does not know God, who does not belong to God, who's not following God, and, and eventually will be judged by God. And then 1 Corinthians 5 tells us that we must not, this is speaking of church discipline, you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral. Ladies and gentlemen, do you realize what this means? This is the Greek word porneia. And it means sexual, it doesn't just mean adultery, it doesn't just mean fornication, it can mean any kind of sexual sin. Any kind of sexual activity outside of the marriage covenant is porneia, it's sexual immorality. And what Paul says is when you find it in the church, when you find it in those who profess to be followers of Jesus, and of course as, as elders here we would say in particular when, when that person is unrepentant, persistent in the sin, and unrepentant of the sin, it calls for church discipline. I've sometimes, sometimes lamented with church leaders that how many people would we have in our church if we actually disciplined and removed all those who persistently struggled 
with pornography? How many empty pews would there be? Sexual immorality is very serious. I want us to feel the weight of that. I want us to feel the weight of that. Young men and women, are you in a dating relationship and you're having sex? That, that is grounds for church discipline. Men and women, are you caught up in the sin of pornography? And you've kept it a secret and you go back again and again and you kind of feel bad about it, but you just keep doing it. That is actually grounds for church discipline. It is a serious sin. And by the way, when I think about how desperately the church in our day, this church, and the whole church of Jesus Christ in the Western world, in Canada, in North America, what we desperately need is revival. And we want to pray and see God save people. And the reality is that he needs to save our churches because we are sinning against God. I'm sure there are many people sitting here even right now who are absolutely paralyzed in their faith because they're caught in this sin and they're choosing not to deal with it. How I long to see revival, but I know it will have to painfully begin right here with us, with me, as we deal with the sin in our lives. And of course, the good news is that we have a God who knows how to deal with sexual immorality. And so we have this command in 1 Corinthians six eighteen: flee from sexual immorality, which means two things to me. It means that we have to make choices to run from sexual sin. We have to decide that enough is enough it's wrong, it is sin. We have to repent, which means that we turn from that sin. But the good news is that when we flee from sexual immorality, the Bible always calls us to run to something new, and that is Jesus. That as we turn from sexual sin and sexual immorality, we have somewhere to go. We can run to the Savior who offers us forgiveness and grace and mercy and redemption. But we must make this choice to flee sexual immorality. Are you with me? Is it time? I know there's people sitting here and you know it's time. It is time to stop playing this game and going around this circle again and again. It is time to talk to somebody. It is time to deal with this. For the glory of God. You can run to Jesus. Flee sexual immorality. How do we do that? Well, we've got to make hard choices. Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Never heard of anyone doing either of those things. And sadly, I rarely hear of people doing the hard things we could do to flee from sexual immorality. Some of us are caught in sexual, sexual immorality simply because we have Netflix. But you know what? We're going to pay for it again this month and we're going to watch it again. Some of us are caught in sexual immorality because we have a smartphone with data. And every time we're alone, we can flip on and we do. We just do because it's so easy. And we're not willing to cut that off and cut that out of our life. To flee from sexual immorality means we need to tell somebody. We need to talk to a trusted believer, a pastor, a friend, someone 
who we can get this out into the light, out of the darkness into the light. That's what it means to flee from sexual immorality. To flee from sexual immorality means we need to change our worship. And what the world has done, and we've bought into this, is it's turned worship of God into worship of sex. And we have worshiped at that altar. And we've given our time and attention to sexual sin and we're caught and stuck. And it's time to flee from that and get back to the worship of God and see his great glory that he alone is worthy of our attention and time. Paul said, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust. You see the choice involved here. There's two things. There's choice. There's human choice. You've got to make a decision. And then there's the work of God, the sanctification that God brings about supernaturally in our lives. Open your heart to this. Run from sin. Run to Jesus. Number, number 10. Sex is mandatory in marriage. Diane said, are you sure that's the right word? Mandatory? That's the word I used. How do we know that? Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. Remember Paul, the unmarried guy, who says it's actually good if you stay unmarried, but, but then he says, because of sexual immorality, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Remember, Paul is writing in a culture where a woman was more like property than an actual partner. And what he's saying here is that uh, that a man has to offer himself to his wife. Isn't it? His wife is not his sex slave. He's actually saying this both ways, that if you're married, you have this obligation. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're married and your spouse gets that twinkle in his or her eye, you've got to remember this scripture. And especially in our culture where we are sex-saturated, this is really crucial and important. He goes on to say, Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you. Now, I don't want to see anyone elbowing your spouse. <clears throat> One young woman uh, in the first service said, Why was I sitting between my parents for this sermon? That would... <clears throat> Yeah, that, that was weird. But folks, this is the word of God. This is clear instruction for those of us who are married. Sex is for marriage. Yeah, sex is mandatory in marriage. And so I just got to ask this question. Maybe it's uncomfortable, but if you're here and you're married, how is this going for you? And maybe a better question, how is your spouse doing? Is your spouse enjoying sexual fulfillment in your marriage? That's actually your God-given responsibility. Now, I realize there's all kinds of dynamics in marriage, and maybe you're here, and you're, maybe you're in a sexless marriage, or the, the fire is gone. There's all kinds of reasons for that. Obviously, there's even biological reasons, and, and you know, a woman who has a, who has a child, there's, there's going to be reasons why we need to um, have this time of mutual consent of, of not experiencing this. But generally... This is what God's word calls us to. If you are in a marriage where you, you and your spouse or one of you is not enjoying, not, not fulfilled sexually, 
it's actually a wonderful moment to pause and say, okay, so what's wrong? There's a beautiful little verse in the Song of Solomon. And of course, remember, Song of Solomon, yeah, it's about sex. Do you like how easily I just say that to all of you? I just, <clears throat> just love making you squirm a little bit. I'm squirming up here, believe me. So the Song of Solomon is about the sexual relationship in marriage, and it's all meta- metaphoric, allegorical, and there's the vineyard and the grapes and the vines and the fruit and all these things. And then there's this little phrase. I think it's in chapter 2. And it says this, Catch the little foxes that steal the fruit from the vines. Catch the little foxes. Remember I told you this is like a sex manual. And so what does it mean, married couple? Catch the foxes that are stealing the fruit. What it means is this. What is it in your marriage that is ruining your enjoyment and your experience of your sexual relationship as husband and wife? What is it? It's time to shoot the fox. Deal with it. It could be simple things. Your wife does not like it when you're scruffy and unshaved. Shave! You come home from work and you don't want to shower and put on deodorant. Well, duh! You can deal with that fox. My point is that if your spouse has lost interest in sex, you better be willing to look in the mirror and say, is there something I'm doing or have done that's hindering this? This is a moment that calls you to conversation. Men and women, if you're married, you've got to be able to talk about these things. I'm just showing you how easy it is to say the word sex. See, you can do it. Talk about these things. Be honest. What is it that's hindering this, what it was meant to be, as we're about to see, this wonderful celebration of covenant love that God has given you to enjoy, and it's actually symbolic of his love and and the the ecstasy of knowing him, and he's given it to you as a husband and wife, and you're just, you're you're not enjoying it? Talk about this. Get some help if you need to. All right, number 11. Sex is a celebration of covenant love. I just mentioned this. So here's Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. See how it's all metaphor and such? Let him lead me to the banquet hall, and let his banner over me be love. It's going to be our closing song. Didn't we sing that at camp, at Sunday school? There's a, a movie quote. I do not think that means what you think it means. Sex is a celebration of covenant love. As we've seen, sex is meant for the covenant of marriage, the safety of that covenant relationship. But it's not just meant to simply be for procreation. It's actually meant to be a celebration. I was driving home last night at dusk, and uh, a couple of miles away, I could see on this country road that someone was setting off fireworks, you know? And I was thinking, yeah, that's like, <clears throat> that's like what I'm going to talk about tomorrow. It's meant to be this celebration Tim Keller says that um, sexual intimacy in marriage is like a covenant renewal ceremony. We we don't think much about that, but we we get it right when we get people married, right? Like we get here, we dress up, we wear, you know, bride's got this huge dress on uh, and the preacher's got to put a suit on and and we we do all of these things because we understand the gravity of what's happening when two people get married. 
And sex is meant to be the ongoing celebration of this wonderful reality that God has made two people one. It's not just a celebration, it's, it's also a reunion of sorts. It's like a glue that brings us back together again and again. Sex is a celebration of covenant love. Finally, one, one more. This one might seem a little weird, but sex points to eternal ecstasy. I don't know about you, but when I experience various things in life and as a married man, thinking a little bit more deeply about like what, what is the point of sex? Why has God made human beings uh, with the ability to experience this? And it's just so wonderful. Does it point to a greater meaning? Because if you, if you know anything about God, everything in his creation points to something about him. And I've come to believe, and others have written about this and taught about this, and I believe it's in the Bible, that sex is meant to point to something far greater than a simple marriage between a husband and a wife. So in Revelation 19, when it describes the union of Christ and his people, it describes it as a marriage feast. And if you know Jewish culture, you you need to understand the way that Jewish people did weddings. So when a husband and wife, you remember Mary and Joseph, so they, they, uh, um, they would get engaged, they used different language then, but they would get engaged and then the man would go and prepare his home and his finances for this big feast because when they actually get married, it's gonna be a week-long feast with all the friends and relatives, perhaps hundreds of people, so there's a lot of things to gather and a lot of money to make and be prepared. And then when he was ready, he would come. They never knew when he was coming, but he would come and someone would shout and say, the bridegroom's coming and he'd come to his wife's family's home and he'd take his wife and everyone would be called, it's time for the wedding. So they would go and I don't know exactly how they officiated these things, but the husband and wife, the couple would would get married and the first thing that would happen is they would go into a little tent that was set up right there on on the feasting grounds and they would immediately go in there and consummate their marriage kind of weird and then when they came out the feasting would begin imagine coming out of that tent everyone's standing there smiling at you (laughs) that's pretty weird and yet here now God uses the same imagery and an idea here now now he takes us into that mindset of of us being joined in a wedding to Christ the wedding supper of the Lamb. And the reality is that those of us who know Christ, we are going to spend eternity with him in ecstasy. The ecstasy that comes from intimacy and intimate union with God himself. Here, if those of you who've experienced sexual, uh, sexual relations, you know that we come to this climactic point where it's, it's just wonderful and, and everything that's wrong in the world just fades away and it's a reminder of what's to come. For those of us that know Christ, we are going to spend eternity in ecstasy in our union with him. It's not gonna end. It's not gonna be any drop-off. It's not gonna be any, it's over now. It's not gonna end. It's, it's gonna go on forever and ever. Sex points to eternal ecstasy. We have made these papers available today. I think they're on your pew. 
sexuality response form. Name is optional. We're asking you to write down your gender, your age. This is a way for us to capture how are we doing as a church. And you can put down no, I'm not currently struggling in this area. In fact, we'd encourage you to do that, actually. If, if you have nothing here to check off in terms of a struggle in your life, just check off no, I'm not currently struggling in this area. Fold it in half, put it in one of the boxes at the back. If you are struggling in one of these areas, then we'd love to hear from you. You don't have to do it this way. I believe there's a, uh, an email response opportunity there. And the emails and these papers are only going to be viewed by our pastoral staff, Andreas, Wayne, and myself. Folks, this is the day. I know for some of you, the time is now to deal with these things. God calls us to walk in the light. So if you're struggling, there's something in your life you've got to deal with, you're married, there's something you and your spouse have to deal with, would you please do something? Talk to someone. Maybe it's not going to be us. Talk to a trusted Christian friend and let's do business with God. Uh, let's sing in closing a song of hope and then I will close in prayer. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you now uh, so desperate for your help. We, Lord, want to flee from sexual immorality. And Lord, we, we know the only way we can do that is by running to you. And so we say, these words are true, yet not I, but through Christ. You are the one who brings victory. You are the one that we turn to, Lord. And so, Lord, we're asking for your help. I know there's people here today struggling very deeply with this topic for a whole variety of reasons, Lord. I pray that where there's sin in our lives, that we would repent, that we would run from our sin, that we would run to you, that we would tell someone that we can trust. I pray that that would happen even today, Lord. I pray for marriages that are struggling and hurting where there is this, there is no joy and no celebration of the oneness of covenant marriage love. Lord, I pray that you'd bring healing Lord, we need humility to deal with these things. We need to be honest about our failings. We need to come to you. Thank you that in the gospel there's hope, there's assurance of forgiveness, and Lord, you promise to change us and transform us, Lord. May we not be the ones to stand in the way of that work. So Lord, be with us as a church. Make us a holy people, Lord. We want to be a people who win souls. And so, Lord, would you help us to first deal with the sin in our own lives? We pray, Lord, that we would do this for your honor and glory. Amen.